faith. It's something that's at the core of the human experience. It's something that's so important to so many people. Even if we don't consider ourselves religious, we all have something with which we uh, guide our lives by, how we make our decisions. But what is faith? And how can we have it? And what's the point in the first place of faith? We'll explore those questions and more in this episode. So let's talk about it together. One of the most terrifying and daunting experiences in life is giving someone control over the as- over an aspect of our life, right? And th- I mean, think about it. Trusting someone is one of the riskiest things we can do. Whether it's um, at work and trusting our, our coworkers and this group project thing we're doing or at school, uh, trusting when we get married, trusting that that person's going to actually put in the work we're willing to put in, uh, trusting even our mechanic are they telling us the truth? That can be a risky thing. And some of us trust easily. Some of us will trust people. Others, not so much. Why? Because we've been burned, right? Think about it. Often our past experiences affect our present ability to trust. Like if you got burned by a mechanic before, you're not going to trust a mechanic. If you've been hurt in a relationship, it's going to take you longer to trust. Even with churches, if you've been hurt by a church, it's going to take you a long time to want to join and be with another church. And the truth is, no one wants to be hurt and disappointed and burned again. And so we try to protect ourselves. We become cautious and we hesitate to trust people and systems. We don't want to be let down again. Then we take this idea of trust and we take it to some of the biggest questions of humanity, right? Like, why is there something instead of nothing? Why are we here? What's the point of life? What happens when we die? What, what is out there? Why is there evil in the world? And the way we answer these questions usually comes down it's what, to faith. It's the role faith plays, right? See, we often trust our faith and our, our beliefs, our belief system to help us navigate through life. We hope it's true, but we don't, can't really fully prove that these things are true, and we can't really be certain of it, but it, it kind of seems to help. And with faith, some people have it, some people don't. Some people have been able to choose it, and others, I just, I just can't get there, right? But when real life hits, when the bottom drops out of our life, do abstract beliefs and, and, and vague hopes really do anything at all? No. See, most of what we call faith doesn't seem very trustworthy for real life in the real world. So why is Jesus different than anything else that claims to have the answer, claims to be a solution? Well, give me a a few minutes and here's what we'll discover. Jesus doesn't require us to believe all the right things. He just asks us to trust him. Now, we, what I want to look at today, we see it in what we call the Gospel of Mark. It's an eyewitness account of Jesus' life. Mark was a friend of the Apostle Peter, and Peter would tell stories about Jesus throughout the rest of his life after he was with Jesus, and Mark wrote them down. And so what we have really is Peter's eyewitness story of Jesus' life. And where we are in the story, it's kind of been a big day, big few days for Jesus and, and his disciples. See, Jesus taught about the kingdom of God and how he was bringing it and how it it won't look like how anyone expects because it'll start small and then, and then secretly grow exponentially. And then they get in a boat and there's a huge storm. And the disciples are about to drown and Jesus stands up and calms the storm and the waves with just his voice. 
And then they get to the other side of the lake, and this guy who's possessed by an army of demons charges them, and Jesus just uses his words and commands the demons what to do. And so they get back in the boat after that, and they sail back to their home base, hoping that they're, you know, at least going to find some time to rest. Not so much. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake, where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. Now what Jairus, Jairus just did is really risky for him. Like He's a leader of the local synagogue, and this is the area where the religious leaders aren't very friendly to Jesus because Jesus doesn't look and act and speak and obey the rules that they expect a good teacher like him or even a good Jew to follow and, and be like. And some of these officials have already started plotting how to kill Jesus because he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And these are the people that Jairus hangs out with. This is like his world. And so Jairus coming to Jesus, he's risking quite a bit. He could be risking his reputation, his friends, maybe even you know, his, his income. But he doesn't have a choice. His daughter is sick. He knows that Jesus can heal. Whether it's good or bad, he knows he can heal. And so Jesus is his last hope. And he comes to Jesus and he begs him to heal his daughter. See, when real life tries to take what really matters, we need something real we can trust. And so Jesus goes immediately with Jairus. But someone else needs Jesus too. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. And now, what this woman is going through, it's not just some like minor inconvenience, you know. It's, it's life-changing. She's, she's suffering through this bleeding without any of the modern day ways to, to handle it. But not only that, she's Jewish, meaning like this is huge for her because in the Torah, the law was if a woman was menstruating, then she was unclean and you couldn't be around her. And anything she touches becomes unclean and anything that touches her becomes unclean. And so she's isolated and she's alone. She's lonely. She's She's miserable. She's on her own. She hasn't probably felt human touch in, in years. And she's desperate. And she's destitute. She has spent all her money trying to be healed. And imagine, like, imagine she's going to these ancient doctors with probably some really weird and probably horrible prescriptions to help heal her. And so she hears. or She's lost all hope, but then she hears about this teacher who can heal. This teacher who, who seems to be able to heal people with just a touch. And she's willing to break the rules to at least get a chance to be healed by him. So she secretly works her way through the crowd, which, again, is risky for her. Because if she's discovered, she's touching all these people getting through the crowd. She's planning on touching Jesus' clothes, making him unclean. But this is her last hope. This is her last chance to be healed. She just, and she believes if she just touches his cloak, then she'll be healed. Which, what's that about? That's kind of like a superstitious, magical belief. There's this idea that if you touch the holy man's robes, or even if his shadow fell on you, you could be healed. And so she reaches out and touches Jesus' robe, and it works. 
Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed from her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask, Who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. So she touches Jesus' clothes, and she's immediately healed. What? Wait, so the superstition worked, and and it, she just used the magic idea, and it, and it heals her? Like, wouldn't you think Jesus would, first, before he heals her, make sure that she's got the right ideas, maybe has a little bit of theology lessons, know who Jesus is, and, and how this all works? Nope. She reached out, she touched Jesus' robe, and she's healed. Why? Because even though she was confused, even though she didn't fully understand everything, she trusted that Jesus could heal her. She had seen others or heard of others being healed by Jesus, and she trusted that he could do it for her. See, what we see here is true faith is trusting the right person, not having all the right beliefs. And after she's healed, she tries to sneak away before she's discovered. But then... The teacher stops and her heart sinks and he says, who touched me? And we get this like pretty funny scene of the disciples being like, what are you talking about? Like, obviously, an eyewitness was there and, and recorded this. Like, what are you talking about? Everyone's touching you. But Jesus had felt the power go out from him. And that shows that the power that Jesus used to heal wasn't like some magical incantation. He wasn't like using the spirits to heal. He wasn't even borrowing power from God. The power to heal was from himself. It was in him. It was his power. See, he is God with the power to restore life and all of creation. Now, when he stops and says, who touched me? Did he really not know who touched him? There's debate about that. But for me, I, I believe he did know. So then why the, why the charade, charade, however you want to say it? Why did he pretend not to know who touched him? I think so the woman couldn't sneak away. He did it for the benefit of the woman so that she would know what had happened, that it wasn't the magic that healed her, it was Jesus, so that she and all the others would know that she was now healed and clean and, I think even more, so that he could talk to her personally. But she doesn't know that yet. And so she's terrified. She's scared. She's afraid that those consequences, that she took a risk to make everybody unclean, those consequences are about to get her. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Jesus doesn't reprimand her. He doesn't give her a theology lesson of like, look, here's where you're completely screwed up and where you believe wrong. No. He calls her daughter, which is the only time we have recorded in the stories of Jesus where he calls someone daughter. And he says, your faith has made you well. So it wasn't the magic, right? It was just that she believed hard enough. No. He says, your faith, your faith in me, you trusting me has made you well. Your willingness to take that step and, and that risk to trust me is what has healed you. See, true faith is about the object of our trust, not the amount of our trust. Her faith wasn't sophisticated. She didn't have her faith and her theology all charted out and systematic. She didn't know much about Jesus. She just knew that somebody had been healed by him and so she could be healed too. And so she took the step and reached out and touched him. See, faith is what we do, not what we say we believe. 
Faith really isn't a noun. It's an action verb. It's something we do. And so she used her faith. She went and did her faith. She touched Jesus and she was healed. And then Jesus says, go in peace. Your suffering is over. And she goes in peace. But Jairus, at this moment, like he's still, Jairus is still standing there. I'm betting he's anything but peaceful. Like this is taking some precious time that his daughter doesn't have. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the house of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. Oh, be Jairus for a second. Like just everything just drops in you, right? You, you finally got the teacher. You took this risk to go talk to this teacher and bring him to your house. He agrees to go. He doesn't ask you to apologize for being a religious leader or anything like that. He goes and then he gets delayed by this woman and the messengers come and say, too late. You would have made it, but now she's dead. Like all hope is lost. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. It's one of the best phrases, but Jesus, right? And it says in this translation, that Jesus overheard. Other translations say that Jesus ignored them. I, I like that one so much better. He ignores the messengers and their, and their hopeless message. And he takes Jairus, I, I picture it, takes Jairus by the shoulders and looks him in the eye and he says, don't be afraid. It says God's like one of God's favorite three words, don't be afraid. And you're thinking like, oh, great. Okay, thanks, Jesus. I'll just try harder not to be afraid. My daughter's dead, but whatever. No, he doesn't, he, Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, don't be afraid just trust. Just have faith. Have faith in me. See, I am going to fix this. Don't be fooled by what seems hopeless. I am bringing a new reality. And as we'll see, hopeless situations are Jesus's specialty. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him. This commotion that's going on in, in that culture and in that time, when someone would, in the family would die, they would hire professional mourners to, to weep and wail and maybe sometimes even play music, giving space for the family to, to grieve in their own way and not be the only ones like making noise and, and crying. And so Jesus gets to the house and all this commotion's going on. He's like, what's going on? Like, why all this commotion? Why all this hopelessness? Like, what's, she's, she's only asleep, guys. And everyone laughs at her. Why? Because they weren't dumb. They knew what dead was. It takes time to go hire the mourners. Like, she, her body is cold. It, they know she's dead. So if she's dead, what, what's Jesus saying? She's only asleep. Well, what he's saying is her death is real, but it's temporary. And when I'm done, it's going to seem like she only was asleep. And then we have, I think, one of the most beautiful scenes in the entire story of Jesus. But he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened, and then he told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus goes into the room with the dead girl and he holds her hand, which technically touching a dead body is supposed to make you unclean in, in the religion. So he holds her hand and he says, Talitha kum. One of the few times we have Jesus's actual Aramaic words recorded for us. Like that scene, Peter, Peter telling Mark this scene. 
he, he, it must have made such an impact on him. Hearing these words and, and the tenderness in Jesus' voice and seeing a, a girl come back to, to, the, to life that when he would tell the story, he would, he would use Jesus' original Aramaic language and use the phrase Talitha Kum. It's a, and it's such a beautiful and, and tender and personal scene. He's saying, little girl, get up. And it reminds me of like my seven-year-old daughter because when she likes to sleep in a lot, and so I go in and I, I have to wake her up for breakfast. And she she actually just made me this cute little heart thing today. And I go in and I'll, I'll rub her back and I'll open the blinds on her window. And I'm like, little bean, it's time to get up, right? And that's just exactly what Jesus is doing. It's like, little bean, time to get up. Stop being dead. And can you imagine being the parents and having that overwhelming pain? And then Jesus comes in and just... So, so casually, so almost nonchalantly, I'm guessing, says, little one, time to get up. And she does. Like that overwhelming shock of just, oh my gosh, she was gone and now she's here. Can you imagine that relief and the tears of joy that would now be flowing? And so she immediately wakes up. She, she starts walking around. And since she's 12 years old, she's probably starving. And so another eyewitness little funny part there, he's like, hey, she's hungry, guys. She's been sick and dead for a while. She needs some food. Feed her. And so they do. And here's what we see in, in both of these stories. Jesus is restoring all of creation and undoing the effects of sin and death. He said he was bringing the kingdom of God. He, he said it would start small, but it would relentlessly and exponentially grow. And then he proved that he was bringing the kingdom of God and, and restoring the cosmos. He, he calms a storm. He, he restores nature. He drives an army of demons out of a man, and he's, he's defeating evil. And now he has healed a broken body, and he has reversed death, restoring life. See, God himself has stepped into our seemingly hopeless world, into our seemingly hopeless stories, and has started fixing everything, showing that one day he will keep his promise and restore everything, humans, universe, everything. He is bringing his kingdom to earth. And these healings that we are reading about, they were just, a, and these miracles, they were just a first taste of that kingdom that is coming. And the ultimate promise, the ultimate proof is that he's going to do it was his own resurrection, where he shows that he's defeated the most hopeless experience we can have as humans, the, the finality of death. And so as we kind of sit here with, like, this is huge. Like, Jesus came to restore all of creation. And so as we sit there, sit here with this idea, here's a question that I want to ask you. In all these stories of trust and faith in Jesus, what is holding you back from fully trusting Jesus. Maybe with what is holding you back from fully trusting Jesus in a specific situation, or maybe trusting Jesus with your entire story. Like maybe you don't feel like you you know enough about Jesus. Maybe you're not even sure of who he is. It's the same as that woman. She didn't know Jesus who he was and he didn't know all the Bible verses. <laughs> they hadn't been written yet about Jesus. She didn't know any of that. All she knew was that she had heard Jesus could heal. And so she trusted and she took that step of reaching out and touching his robe. Sometimes the choice to trust comes before we understand, right? I, I guess an example would be like kids in a car with their parents, right? Kids don't know how cars work and the pedal on the left and the right and the middle and, and all that. They just trust their parents, know what they're doing and they go. But as they get older and they watch and they learn themselves, they learn, they get the knowledge of how it all works. I think it's kind of similar to faith and trust. Sometimes the choice to trust comes 
first and then the understanding. Remember, true faith is trusting the right person, not having all the right beliefs. Maybe what's what's keeping you from, from trusting Jesus right now is that, as we said at the very beginning, it's scary to trust someone. Like, what if we trust them and it doesn't work out the way we want? That's possible, right? It's possible. Jesus doesn't always heal. There were many girls in the day who weren't raised back to life. But someday he will raise them. And someday he will whisper to all of us, little one, it's time to get up. And so in the meantime, when, when we're not sure we're going to get the answer we want or the solution we want, we have to ask this question. From what we know about Jesus, is he good or is he not? Is he who he said he is? Will he do what he said he will do or not? And if he is good, then we can trust that whatever decision he makes to heal or not to heal is also good, even if we can't see it. Maybe it's pride. And I know we wouldn't put it in those words, but maybe it's it's like pride in, in ourselves that keeps us from, from trusting Jesus fully. Like, you've got this, right? You don't need help. Well, how's that been working for you? Like, is that really, is that been great for your life and and you feel confident that you can handle anything that comes after you i don't i don't think so maybe it's just like well i'm not one of those religious people i get that i know i i like to say i'm not religious either but i'm a pastor so i can't really get away from that label but see trust trusting jesus is not about religion it's about is the historical jesus who he said he is can he do what he said he can do he said he would die and rise again we have historical proof that he did it so can we trust him? Maybe for you, it's shame. It's shame that's keeping you from trusting Jesus. Like you don't deserve Jesus to intervene in your story. Just like the woman. Think about that woman. She touched Jesus. Did she make him unclean? No. When the unclean touches Jesus, he doesn't become unclean. He makes them clean. And he invites all of us to come and take that step and reach out and touch him and trust him. So whatever it is that is keeping you from fully trusting Jesus right now, here's my invitation. Take a first step of trust. Take the first steps of trust. First, tell Jesus what is truly going on. Like, what are you going through? What's on your heart? What's on your mind? What's stressing you out? What are you worried about? What is the situation that you're facing that you feel like is just too much for you? Be honest with him. Like, he already knows it. So tell him. Be honest and tell him. See, we start trusting Jesus by being willing to be vulnerable and honest about ourselves and being fully ourselves with him. And then when you're ready, once you've taken that step, which is a huge step, I know, but once you've taken that first step, then take the next step and ask him this. Please help me trust you. Please help me trust you. I... I can't do it on my own. Like, I'm scared to trust. Help me trust you. See, it's not something he just says, I command you to trust me and do it or you're bad. No, he wants to walk with us in it. He is gentle and patient, so he wants to help us. So say, Jesus, here's what's going on. I don't know if I can trust, so please help me trust you. And then once we pray that, once we ask him that, start practicing. Start practicing trust. Trust isn't something that just comes overnight. It's something we have to practice. And so as those things come, just keep saying, please help me trust you in this. Please help me trust you in this. And we're practicing that and practicing letting the worry go. Sometimes people, you'll see them when they pray, they hold their hands like this. Or when the music at church or whatever's going on and they have their hands up. and they're, It's, it's almost a physical act of handing Jesus our lives or, or our worry. So maybe that's, in, you know, when you're alone, do that. 
hand him your way. It's a great way to practice trust. The more we trust, the more it makes sense. The more we see that he is actually trustworthy. And so we practice trust. And then, after you do all that, continually read the story of Jesus regularly. Read the story of Jesus regularly. It's like the more we know about Jesus, the more we read his story and what he can do and who he is, the more we learn that we can trust him. So imagine a life where you are able to fully trust your life to something, to someone that isn't some vague abstract idea, but is concrete, that is real, not just some hopeful ideal, a real life person who proved that he's way more than just a person, that he proved that he sees us, that he loves us, that he knows us, that he's bringing God's kingdom and restoring all of humanity and all of creation, one person at a time. Imagine life where no matter what happens, you know that ultimately, in the end, it will be good and you will be okay. Like, think about it. What kind of peace and confidence, maybe purpose and assurance and joy and patience and hope would that bring to you if you knew everything will one day be good? That is the life we are invited into. That is the life Jesus offers Trusting Jesus gives us a realistic yet relentless hope. Thanks for watching this week's content put out by Cross Creek Community Church. Uh, thanks for joining us on this journey through Mark, the story of Jesus. Uh, there'll be lots of content for you available online, YouTube, and podcast. But also don't forget, we meet in person on Sundays at 4.30 in South Salem at 525 Idlewood Drive. So find out more on our website, yourcrosscreek.com. And we're just really glad to see you here online. Uh, send us your information via the welcome form. Say hello. Uh, request a Bible, request prayer, or join a small group. Uh, It's all online there for you, and we'll see you next week.